The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. I want to thank Stephanie H., Danielle F., Aaron R., and Carson E. for becoming Patreon supporters. You'll have some goodies coming in the mail soon. Before we get into today's episode, I want to let you know that before we get into the case, you're going to hear a promo for a true crime podcast you should give a listen. It's called Women in Crime. Check it out. In the last several years, criminologists have really begun to focus on the topic of women in crime. This interest has inspired Amy and I to create a podcast devoted entirely to true stories about women in crime. Twice a month, we will discuss individual stories of women who have been victims of crime or perpetrators. Sometimes these two are one and the same. We will also choose cases in which women have been falsely accused, exonerated, or women whose work in the criminal justice system has brought them notoriety. By staying true to our criminologist roots, we will tell you the full stories of these women, but we will also explain the cause of the events that happened and whether the criminal justice system got it right or not. No matter what, this podcast will focus on women in crime all of the time. So stay tuned. Women in Crime is available now. In the early hours of October 14, 2006, two sheriff's deputies arrived at 23894 Hawk Drive in Bonaparte, Iowa, after receiving a disturbing 911 call. Upon entering the house, they were faced with a scene straight out of a horror film. Every single member of the family who lived there had been slaughtered, except for one. While both parents and their three teenage daughters lay dead, the oldest son was nowhere to be found. Join me as I walk you through one of the worst mass killings in Iowa history. takes us to Bonaparte, Iowa, a rural town in Van Buren County with a population of around 400. Bonaparte sits at the southeastern corner of the state, just north of the Missouri border. The town's riverfront district, which overlooks the Des Moines River, was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1989. With its restored mills, historic street lamps, and Victorian brick homes dating back to the 1800s, Visiting Bonaparte is like traveling back in time. While hiking trails around the river offer modern visitors scenic views, the river itself was once a complete nuisance to residents. In the mid-1800s, when newly constructed railroads connected Iowa towns, Bonaparte became a thriving hub of manufacturing and agricultural industries. But the Great Flood of 1851 decimated many towns which lacked dams or levees. A dam was built the following year. 1903 was also a catastrophic year for Bonaparte. A massive flood destroyed its dam, followed by a fire that destroyed 14 of the downtown area's buildings. The town never fully recovered, 
but preservation efforts have brought back much of its charm. Michael Bentler, 53, and his wife, Sandra, 47, were Bonaparte natives who went on to raise a family in the town. Their 4,000-square-foot home sat on a bluff overlooking the Des Moines River. The idyllic home featured five bedrooms, two bathrooms, a two-car garage, a swimming pool, and a hot tub. The wood accents in the interior of the home gave it the feel of a rustic hunting lodge set back on a sprawling property which extended over 400 acres. Mike and Sandra's three daughters, Sheena, 17, Shelby, 15, and Shanae, 14, enjoyed hunting on the property's wooded areas. Their only son, Sean, 22 years old, moved to Quincy, Illinois in 2002, soon after graduating high school. He moved into his first apartment along with his childhood friend, Keith Gratz. Sean's father, Mike, was a gun collector and enthusiast, and Sean would occasionally join him on outings where the two of them would shoot guns. Living in such a small town typically means that every resident is connected somehow. The Bentlers owned four successful businesses in town, two grain elevators and two lumber yards. Not only did these businesses serve most of southeastern Iowa, they also employed many of Bonaparte's residents. Their estate was estimated to be worth $2.8 million. The Bentler girls, who attended Harmony High School, were all well-liked. Their classmates have told the press that Mr. and Mrs. Bentler could be seen in attendance at every extracurricular activity, supporting their daughter's interests. At around 3.30 in the morning on October 14th of 2006, 14-year-old Shanae Bentler called 911. The call lasted 60 seconds, and the sheriff's dispatcher on the other end of the phone line could barely hear her at first because she was whispering. While crouched down in her bedroom closet, Shanae quietly said, My brother is going to do something, but I don't know what. In the background, Sandra Bentler, Shanae's mother, could be heard screaming, Sean, don't. Sandra's pleas were followed by the unmistakable sound of a gunshot. This time, the screams came from Shanae. No, don't, she called out before the line went dead. Around the same time as Shanae dialed 911, Sandra Bentler also called the emergency line. Her call, which came in right after Shanae's, was cut short before the dispatcher could answer. The dispatcher called back, but it was too late. Three deputies arrived at the Bentler home just minutes later, Rob Cavaness, Brad Hudson, and John Zane. Peering through the glass sliding doors on the upstairs level, Deputy Cavaness could see a body lying on the floor. After gaining entry, the scene that greeted them was gruesome. Five lifeless bodies were scattered around the home. Deputy Hudson recognized the family and promptly identified them. Mike and Sandra Bentler and their three teenage daughters were all killed by gunshot wounds to the head. Despite it being three o'clock in the morning at the time of the mass shooting, one of the Bentler sisters was wearing a t-shirt and jeans. Sheena was found in her bed wearing pajamas. She had a bullet wound to her face. Both Shanae and Shelby were discovered in their bedroom closets. 
it seemed as if they tried to hide from their attacker. The master bedroom was in a state of complete disarray. The undressed body of Mike Ventler was splayed out across a doorway between the master bedroom and the hallway. He had been shot in the eye and one of his ankles. Sandra's body lay near her husband at the end of the same hallway, with one arm draped over a chair. The Bentlers had been massacred, and the crime appeared to be deeply personal. As soon as media outlets were alerted to the Bentler family killings, Bonaparte residents were in a state of disbelief. By all accounts, the Bentlers were considered a fixture in their community, so it came as quite a shock to the tiny, serene town when the news broke that they had all been gunned down. Sandra Bentler was an active participant in Harmony Athletic Boosters, a program through Harmony High School that provides scholarships and college financial aid for graduating athletes. She was also a very active member of her church in Farmington. Upon hearing of the family tragedy, many parishioners prayed while sobbing openly. Mike Bentler was a strong advocate of wildlife conservation efforts and actively participated in groups like Pheasants Forever and the Pope Young Club. As a successful businessman, he belonged to organizations where he shared his wealth of knowledge with aspiring business owners. Members of the community were stunned that anyone might hate him or his family enough to murder them in cold blood. All three of the Bentler teenage daughters, Shanae, Sheena, and Shelby, attended Harmony High School. The girls were all popular and active in various clubs and extracurricular activities. Sheena was a senior, on track to be named valedictorian and graduate early. She participated in an array of sports, including trap shooting and softball. Shelby, who was a sophomore, was also athletic. She played softball and basketball. Shanae, a freshman, loved playing basketball and softball. All three girls were well-known in their small school. Their deaths rocked the small town and came as a complete shock to their friends and classmates. Right away, school officials organized an assembly to address their classmates' reactions. The student body was so devastated, grief counseling and clergy services were offered to students for more than a year after the murders. On October 20th, a funeral was held for the five deceased members of the Bentler family. Hundreds of mourners had shown up the night before for the family's wake. On the morning of the funeral, 1,500 people poured into Harmony High School. The gymnasium, hallways, and two classrooms were filled with the Bentler's relatives, friends, classmates, and employees. Students of Harmony High School decorated trees lining the walkway to the school's entrance with red and white balloons, the school's colors. Sandra, Shanae, Sheena, and Shelby all lay in open caskets made of copper. Sandra clutched a rosary in her hands with dozens of flower bouquets surrounding her. Mike was cremated as requested in his will. A golden urn holding his ashes was placed between his daughter's caskets, along with a framed photograph of him. As the funeral procession made its way from the school to Bonaparte Cemetery, many residents stepped outside of their homes and businesses to pay their respects. It was clear the Bentlers were well-liked by everyone they encountered. Everyone wondered who would kill them and in such a savage way. 
husband and I run a business together and we often ship items to customers. Instead of waiting in line at the post office or just slapping a bunch of stamps on a package, we use stamps.com. With our stamps.com account, we can print just the right amount of postage from home and there's no money wasted on unnecessary postage. Plus, we get awesome discounts and get this, we can also ship UPS through our stamps.com account. It's so easy to use and you can print official U.S. postage for any letter or package and mail it anywhere you want. My husband and I love that we can call and schedule free pickups and all the deep discounts we get using our stamps.com account. Right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Murderish. That's stamps.com and enter Murderish. Stay safe, my friends. After arriving at the crime scene, law enforcement called in Iowa's Division of Criminal Investigation to assist in their investigation. Agents arrived at the Bentler property around 2 p.m. the day of the murders to begin collecting evidence. They worked tirelessly and stayed until midnight. They returned the next day to continue their work at the scene. They collected spent shell casings, bullet fragments, hair samples, and fabric particles. They also tested a downstairs safe for fingerprints, which held over $700 in cash and several pieces of jewelry. One of the fingerprints belonged to the Bentler's son, Sean, but it wasn't clear when the fingerprint was left. Fingerprints don't come with a timestamp. Investigators also noticed tire tracks in the dirt driveway leading up to the house. Using a technique similar to creating a dental mold, DCI agents made a stone cast of these tracks. The tire track cast was then compared to the original tires of countless vehicles. The tracks were determined to be from a 1991 Ford Fiesta. This would turn out to be a solid piece of evidence. Deputy Cavanis also found a 22 caliber rifle in a ditch on the property. He believed this was likely the weapon used in the killings. Investigators found out quickly that the gun was registered to Mike Bentler. The gun was taken into evidence and dusted for fingerprints but no usable prints were found. Other clues lay on the victim's bodies. Mike Bentler had bruising on his forehead. An Iowa State medical examiner would later determine this was caused by being struck with the butt of a gun. The crime seemed personal, as the victims were all shot at close range. Fragments of a cell phone were found in Shanae's bedroom closet near her body. It was clear to investigators a bullet had gone through her cell phone and into her head, most likely while she was trying to call for help. There was also an imprint from her cell phone left on her cheek. Another crucial piece of evidence was located on the Bentler's kitchen table. Unlike the phone in Shanae's closet, this phone was completely intact. It was later determined to belong to Sean, the sole survivor of the Bentler family. Coincidentally, Keith, Sean's oldest friend, stopped by the morning of October 14th while catching up with Sean in his living room. In the living room of his apartment, Keith received a phone call. It was his mother 
asking Keith if he had heard about the murders. Stunned, Keith got off the phone and told Sean to call his mother to check in with her. When Sean told Keith he had left his phone in his mother's car, Keith handed him his phone. Keith would later recall how Sean's call to his mother went unanswered and how Sean didn't seem too concerned. From the beginning, authorities suspected Sean was involved in the annihilation of his family. The 22-year-old was the only Bentler who survived and the only immediate family member who didn't live in the Bonaparte home. Sean struggled financially for most of his adult life, even though his parents were wealthy. He graduated from Harmony High School in 2002 and moved into Trace Apartments with his childhood friend, Keith, the summer after graduation. Though he enjoyed the newfound independence from his parents, Sean didn't exactly excel in higher education. He attended John Wood Community College in the fall of that year, but dropped out in November before the first semester was completed. By early 2003, Sean moved in with another friend, Nathan Allen. This arrangement lasted less than a year. Sean often failed to pay rent. When Nathan uncovered drug paraphernalia belonging to Sean in their shared living space, he knew he had to go. In August, Nathan told Sean he had to move out. Sean became a father during his teenage years. At the time of his family's deaths, he was the father of two girls who came from two different mothers. Sean's ex-girlfriend, Nicole Kite, was the mother of Chloe, who was four years old at the time of the murders. His other daughter, Avalay, was only 18 months old. She was the product of an on-again, off-again relationship Sean had with her mother, Lexi Leslie. The couple broke up when Lexi was just two months pregnant, but were trying their best to reconnect in recent months. Sean wanted to be a part of Avalay's life, but Lexi wanted Sean to contribute more financially. Sean had difficulty holding down a job, which meant he wasn't very consistent with child support payments. He was often late on paying rent and other bills as well. While living with Nathan, Sean was working at Home Depot, but after calling in sick far too often, he was let go. In 2003, Sean moved to Mount Pleasant, Iowa. Mount Pleasant is about 30 miles north of Bonaparte. The close proximity to his family meant that Sean could attend family gatherings more regularly. It also allowed him to work for the family's lumber business. Sean and his father, Mike, worked side-by-side side to design and build houses. While it's unknown what exactly transpired between father and son, relatives and family friends knew that Sean and Mike didn't always see eye-to-eye. Eye. In 2005, Sean moved back to Quincy, Illinois. He began sharing an apartment with several friends, including Keith Gratz and Travis Holder. In an interview with the Des Moines Register, Keith said he didn't know why Sean ended up back in Quincy, saying, I don't know that he felt he had a lot to measure up against when it came to his family. Sean's lack of success pegged him as the failing child, someone who didn't meet the expectations of his affluent family. He was determined to make it on his own without riding on the coattails of his parents' success. But in Keith's opinion, 
Sean lacked the business savvy and determination of his father, which was potentially a significant insecurity of Sean's. Whether or not a strain in their father-son relationship existed, Mike and Sandra visited Sean on occasion, making the 90-minute drive. They would take Sean shopping or show up with a cooler full of food. According to Keith, his parents were nice people. They would have helped him at the drop of a hat. Sean's childhood friend went on to say that Sean's pride often got in the way, asking for help was Sean's last resort. From March until August of 2005, Sean worked as a salesman at Schottenkirk Chevrolet, a used car dealership based out of Quincy. Again, Sean's repeated tardiness, constant absences, and failure to meet the dealership's sales quota forced his manager to fire him. Several weeks of unemployment followed. For three weeks in September, Sean got another sales position, this time at Neil Coleman Auto Sales in Quincy. He quit at the end of September, offering his manager the explanation that his father had just died of a heart attack. But he was caught in a lie when his former manager called Sandra to express condolences. Chillingly, this was just a few weeks before the horrific murders were committed. At around 10 a.m. on October 14th, the day his family was murdered, Sean left his Quincy home on a motorcycle. He was pulled over 20 minutes later by Highway Patrol for driving without a valid license and operating an uninsured vehicle. Ironically, he was initially taken into custody for charges completely unrelated to the death of his family. While in custody, officers discovered Sean had an outstanding warrant for traffic violations and drug possession charges. He was held in Adams County Jail on $1,000 bond. Sean called Keith for help, but his childhood friend declined. It didn't take long for investigators in Iowa to piece things together and connect Sean to the multiple murder investigation. Iowa police officers arrived at the Adams County Jail later in the day to question Sean in connection with the murder of his family. In a videotaped session, DCI agents spent the first 30 minutes reading Sean his rights and asking routine questions. Once he got a bit more comfortable, Sean was asked to describe his whereabouts during the early morning of October 14th. Sean said his mother had come by Quincy on the night of October 13th. He added that he had left his cell phone in her car that night. One agent hinted that something unthinkably bad happened at his parents' home. Sean responded by telling them he couldn't figure out why authorities needed to talk to him. After pressing him further, one of the agents told Sean his parents and sisters were dead. His reaction, caught on video, was on par with what you'd expect after hearing such shocking news. But several minutes later, the agents can be overheard off-camera, remarking about Sean sobbing, calling it crocodile tears. When they return to the room, one of the agents accuses Sean of killing his whole family because his parents refused to give him money. He denied the allegation, saying that he loved his family. The agents later brought up the 911 call, asking Sean why his sister Shanae shouted his name. He responded by shouting, I don't know why, repeatedly. 
Sean spent another night in Adams County Jail. His bond soared to $2.5 million. The following morning, he appeared in the county courtroom for a brief hearing. During the hearing, Sean waived extradition. In some cases, a defendant may opt to waive extradition in order to convey to prosecutors that they are cooperating fully with authorities during an investigation. Signing a waiver of extradition means a fugitive cannot fight being captured in another state. Because Sean was being charged with a crime in the state of Iowa and allegedly fled to the state of Illinois where he resided, signing this waiver allowed authorities to bring him back to Iowa to await trial. It was ultimately determined that investigators had a motive and enough evidence to charge Sean Bentler for the murder of his entire family. On the afternoon of October 15, 2006, Sean was picked up by officers from Van Buren County and transported to Iowa. He was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. We're all staying home more during this time. I still think it's important to do whatever we can to stay positive and feel good. Even if I'm not leaving the house, I still put on my Orate gold necklace because it just makes me feel better. Orate has a cool backstory too. It's a fine jewelry company founded by women for women. Here's what I love about my Orate jewelry. I can wear it in the shower because it's real gold, no green skin. I also love that the company gives back. A child in need receives a book whenever Orate sells a piece of jewelry. Orate makes the most stylish pieces of jewelry while keeping in mind ethical manufacturing processes. I've been wearing my Orate necklace and ring for weeks now and I get so many compliments. And it's clear these pieces will last a very long time. For 15% off your first Orate purchase, go to oratenewyork.com slash murderish and use promo code murderish. That's A-U-R-A-T-E newyork.com slash murderish and use promo code murderish for 15% off your first Orate purchase. Upon arriving back in his home state, Sean waived his right to a jury trial. This meant a judge would decide his fate. On May 7th of 2007, Sean's trial began at the Van Buren County Courthouse in Keesaquah, Iowa. Judge Michael R. Mullins presided over the week-long trial. Relatives from both sides of the extended family were in attendance, hoping the grisly deaths would be met with justice. In total, 30 relatives of the Bentlers flooded the courtroom, with many of them wearing photo buttons of the victims. According to Fox News, in opening statements, Assistant Attorney General Scott Brown said, There were five brutal slayings that took place at the Bentler house. The evidence will overwhelmingly prove that the person that pulled the trigger each and every time was the defendant, Sean Bentler. Defense attorney David Sullen countered by saying his client got along with his family, with his mother helping him financially and often doing his laundry for him. Sullen argued that Sean Bentler lacked a motive to kill his entire family. From the onset, the prosecution focused on the frantic 911 call made by Shanae Bentler. 
a recording of the dramatic call was played in the courtroom, with Sean being identified by both his mother and his sister before they died. The defense, however, cited the call as hearsay. The home was dark, they argued, and Sandra had poor eyesight. Couldn't it be possible that she had misidentified her attacker? To support this theory, records from Sandra's optometrist's office were submitted into evidence. According to the prosecution, this was very unlikely. As mentioned in Mississippi Valley News Network, Brown argued, the last person Sandra Bentler would have guessed as being there and shooting was her son. He went on to say the perpetrator had to possess a thorough awareness of the home's layout. He elaborated by saying, they were shot in the head. Someone would have to know their way around the property to the house and their way in that house to know how to get up to the upper bedrooms. Someone had to know where lights were located to turn them on and off. Another key piece of evidence presented was Sean's cell phone, which was found inside the Bonaparte house. Sean did not live in the house, so the prosecution argued that this proved he was present at the time of the murders. Phone records indicated two calls were made from Sean's phone around the time of the murders. Lexi Leslie was called at 10.48 p.m., and another call was made to a friend named Nick Reynolds at 12.09 a.m. This would have made it highly unlikely that Sean's phone was left inside his mother's car the night of October 13th, as he claimed. Mike Halverson, DNA analyst for the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation, presented particularly damning evidence. When Sean was arrested, no blood was present on his clothing, at least to the naked eye. But after thorough testing, blood droplets were discovered on Sean's white socks. It was determined that the blood belonged to Sandra Bentler. The defense argued that Sandra did laundry for her son on a regular basis, and he had three sisters. Perhaps the blood appeared on his socks accidentally. Halverson's testimony, however, would cast huge doubt on this theory. He testified that the manner in which the blood stain was broken up signified blood spatter. Although the case seemed open and shut, defense attorney David Solon was quick to remind the courtroom that it was the state's burden to prove his client's guilt. The defense went on to criticize investigators' focus on Sean while not pursuing any other leads or suspects. The defense called Sean's roommate, Travis, to testify. Travis claimed he saw Sean at their apartment at various times leading up to the early morning on October 14th. He said he saw Sean at around 6 p.m., before leaving with friends to attend an out-of-town football game. After the game, they stopped at a friend's home to drink some whiskey before calling it a night. Travis returned to Quincy at around 1.30 in the morning, and he said he saw Sean sitting on the couch in their apartment. The defense went on to argue that it wasn't possible in that time frame to make the drive from Quincy to Bonaparte and back. The prosecution, however, disagreed. There was a five-hour window of time when Travis lost track of Sean's whereabouts. 
it could be argued the drive would take much less than 90 minutes in the middle of the night. Things got very interesting when the prosecution asked Travis about his 1991 Ford Fiesta, which was the car make and model linked to the tire tracks outside the Bentler residence. Although Darwin Chapman, a state fingerprint and tire print expert, testified that the treads came from that specific model, similar tires could be purchased at the local Walmart. Given this, Chapman couldn't say with complete certainty that Travis's car had been at the scene. Besides the tire tracks that may have come from a 1991 Ford Fiesta, Travis's car held one more piece of compelling evidence. When Travis returned home on Friday night, before getting picked up by friends, his Ford Fiesta had a quarter tank of gas. The next morning, however, when Travis left for a Saturday work shift, the gaslight indicator was in the red, as though his car had been driven. Sean had no car of his own after having his license revoked, and he was known to borrow his roommate's cars without asking permission. The prosecution showed the court that it was possible that Sean drove the 1991 Ford Fiesta to his family's house the day they were murdered. Though Sean showed little emotion throughout the trial, it was emotionally taxing for all of the family and friends who were present. The most difficult day came on Wednesday, May 9th, the third day at trial. Jerry McLemore, an associate state medical examiner, spoke of the victim's injuries while displaying autopsy photos. Many family members left the courtroom feeling overwhelmed by the sheer brutality of the murders. McLemore went through the injuries of each family member in excruciating detail. It was evident from the photos that Sandra Bentler fought for her life after the first non-lethal shot, which hit her in the face. Both Mike and his daughter, Shanae, were shot in the eye. All of the victims had suffered tremendously. Lexi Leslie, Sean's most recent ex-girlfriend, stood to lose a lot if Sean was found not guilty. Though Sean was named beneficiary of his parents' estate, an Iowa law states, a person who unintentionally or unjustifiably causes or procures the death of another shall not receive property, benefit, or other interest. Though Sean's daughter, Avale, had not spent a great deal of time with her grandparents, if her father was disqualified as the sole beneficiary, Sean's parents' estate would be awarded to his next of kin, his two young daughters. Lexi testified about a conversation she had with Sean a week before the murders. She said he told her he wouldn't have trouble with money if his parents were dead. He followed up, asking Leslie if she would continue seeing him and allow him to see their daughter if he murdered somebody. She went on to say that Sean had not mentioned a visit with his mother right before she spoke with him. The investigation revealed that Sean and Lexi had been talking on the phone at the same time Sean told investigators he had been with his mother. Lexi also testified that Sean had driven to his father's lumber yard and took cash from the register on at least two occasions. On the fourth day of trial, Judge Mullins took time to walk through the Bentler home. He was joined by state criminologist Mike Halverson, 
who walked him through the timeline and evidence. In a surprising move, Sean Bentler took the stand the following day. To an awestruck and heartbroken courtroom, he admitted to stealing money from his parents occasionally and that he had told people in his life that he hated his father. He said, however, that it was a stretch to say he wanted his family dead and reiterated how much he loved them all. After hearing testimony for a week, both sides rested their case and Judge Mullins was ready to deliver a verdict. On May 27th of 2007, Sean Bentler was found guilty on five counts of first-degree murder for the annihilation of his entire family. Little to no reaction appeared on his face while the verdict was read. His little sister, Shanae's 911 call, was perhaps the most influential piece of evidence. That call, alongside Sandra's blood found on Sean's socks, phone records, flimsy witness accounts to support Sean's alibi, Travis's testimony about his gas tank, and the tire tracks, were all cited by Judge Mullins as key pieces of evidence, which led to Sean's conviction. When asked by the judge if there was anything he wanted to say, Sean replied with a meek, no, before being led away. On June 19th of 2007, Sean received five life sentences for his crimes, with four out of five sentences to be served concurrently. According to Iowa State Daily, when remarking on Sandra Bentler's murder, Judge Mullins said during his sentencing, you showed no mercy to her as she begged you. The sentence for Sandra's murder was ordered by the judge to be served consecutively to the other sentences. Judge Mullins also ordered $750,000 be paid by Sean in restitution to the victims. A portion of that money would go into the Bentler's estate, while the rest would be awarded to Sean's two daughters. Several relatives read victim impact statements. According to Martin Mendez of the Fort Madison Daily Democrat, one of Sandra's brothers and Sean's uncle turned to his nephew and said, you just need to be a man now and own up to what's happened. According to Julie Bentler of the Fort Madison Daily Democrat, one of Mike's sisters addressed Sean's utter lack of remorse. She stated, You had one hour and 20 minutes to drive. At any point, you could have changed your mind, but you didn't. You had to take that time to plan how you would so methodically kill your dad, my brother, your mom, and your sisters. I will never understand how you could look each of them in their eyes and do this. As documented by Greg Bentler in the Herald Wig, one of Mike's brothers spoke of how his daughters had looked forward to seeing their cousins at Thanksgiving the previous year. Not possible, he remarked, his voice breaking as tears streamed down his face. He would later tell the press, Legal justice has been served, but nothing brings them back. Somehow evil found its way to a beautiful family. In early July, about a month after sentencing, Sean filed an appeal. He denied any wrongdoing, citing the state's evidence as hearsay and circumstantial. The appeal was denied. The Bentlers' businesses were all sold shortly after the murders. As for their property, almost three years after the murders, the land was split into six tracts and auctioned off to seven buyers. Though Sean's daughters, Avalay and Chloe, 
will both have a sizable inheritance split between them when they reach legal age, the Bentler's estate value had depleted with the sale of their property and businesses. Not only was Sean a son and a brother to his victims, he was also the father of two young girls. Despite all of this, he seemed to lack the empathy required to stop himself from carrying out such unspeakable crimes. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you'd like more info about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. If you want to connect on social media, head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd love for you to leave the show a review wherever you're listening now. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources. Stick around after the outro music if you'd like to hear a list of sources used for the episode. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Sources for this episode include Associated Press, The Courier, May 10, 2007, Adam Bell's The Gazette, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, May 25, 2007, Robin Delaney, MVM News Network, May 14, 2007, Robin Delaney, MVM News Network, November 2, 2006, Dorothy Gades de Souza, The Gazette, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, May 25, 2007, Jennifer Jacobs, The Des Moines Register, October 19th of 2006. Aaron Jordan, The Des Moines Register, May 22nd, 2007. Amy Lawrenson, South Illinoisan, May 11th, 2007. Amy Lawrenson, The Courier, May 10th, 2007. Globe Gazette, May 11th, 2007. Harold Wig, December 17th of 2006. The Gazette, August 24th, 2009. Matt Milner, Sioux City Journal, June 20th, 2007. Melissa Shriver, KHQA Radio, June 19th, 2007. Melissa Shriver, KHQA Radio, October 15th, 2007. Sioux City Journal, October 15th, 2007. Associated Press, NBC News, October 16th, 2016. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.